We'll be in Acts chapter 5, and uh, again covering um, verses 1 through 11. So last week, uh, just to catch you up, man, we, we emphasized um, the, the reality that uh, we are called to be a holy people and what that, what that looks like, and, um, and the transition. I don't have my cups up here, but you were supposed to follow the ball uh, between the temple and now being the, the church and all of that. And um, I don't have time, again, to recap all of that. But um, we, need to, we need to address properly what's happening in this story, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And I baited it for several weeks. And um, so th- there's a balance here. And there's a question of, called the holiness, yes. Um, what's, what's the line? How do we know what's legalistic? How do we know what's hypocrisy? Like, wh- where, do, where do we get that? And... Um, can we, can we make sense of this story without, um, without forcing it to say something that it's not saying? And uh, I think that's, that's the main challenge here. So, but before I, um, before I tell you what I think, I want to know, know what you think. So here's a, um, a quiz. Were Ananias and Sapphira saved, in your opinion? Now, uh, however, however you would uh, answer that question is going to dictate how you feel you can and cannot read this text, which is, uh, which is sort of backwards from what you're supposed to, to do. You're supposed to let the text tell you uh, what, it, what it says and then make your conclusions from there. But in general, from what you know of the story so far, are, are they believers? And however you answer that question, um, you, you've got to look for some, some reason behind that. And I don't know what that is for you. Maybe that's because they were, you know, part of the church that's, uh, you know, in the, they're gathering together, or maybe because they're giving stuff to the church, or because whatever you have, you, you've answered this somehow, and, um, and you have a conclusion, and whatever, whatever you believe about that will also then affect what you think about the church today. And uh, so, so letting, letting the idea uh, of whether or not these people are genuine believers drive your understanding of how... Um, how you respond to sin in the church or sin in your own life um, is, is largely driven from this, this particular idea. Not this necessarily this text, but from this idea. And so, um, with that being said, um, look with me at uh, Acts chapter 5, and I'll read verses 1 through 11, and then um, I'll pray, and uh, we'll attack this together. Okay. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and he brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. Um, It says, great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose up, they wrapped him up, and they carried him out, and they buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the property for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And she immediately fell down and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. 
And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us this morning uh, to overcome distractions. Um, There's things that uh, we have running in our heads right now. There's situations that we've brought um, into this room. Um, And there's also things like it just being hot. Father, let that not keep us this morning from hearing from you. God, I pray that you would speak your word to us. God, you provide what we need for life, for truth, for all things. Father, I pray that you'd give us um, what we need to uh, hear from you this morning. God, it's only by your spirit that um, this effort can be fruitful. So God, we ask for your spirit to help us. For those that know, that um, they can see truth, God, they're Eyes provided by you, ears that can hear what you would say and speak. And Father, new hearts that can receive what you would say. And for those that don't, God made you, by your spirit this morning, convict us to live lives of truth before you, that it would be for your glory. And I pray now that you would move us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this uh, answering the question I, I quizzed you on, and I hope that you really did answer it rhetorically in your own brain. Do I think that these were genuine believers? And maybe you're like, well, I don't have the, that's above my pay grade. True. Um, but looking at situations like that is not something that is uncommon. Interacting with people and the reality that the church tends to be something that feels a little bit like a mixed bag has led to some pretty random and weird interpretations of this text. Um, And so uh, you'll hear everything from, um, it's actually Peter that's out of line in this case. Peter has been entrusted with the authority over the church, and um, he's abusing it. He's he's taking it further than it needed to go, and uh, he's actually struck these people dead. And uh, so that's one explanation. Another explanation is that um, it's that these people were genuine believers, but the the sheer um, shock of having their sin found out caused a heart attack. And I'm like, maybe you can get by on one person. What well, happened to one of them, but both of them, right? At the same time, like, so, so the ability to try to do some gymnastics to make this text say something other than what it says um, presents some, some difficulties. So what it says is that these people lied to the Holy Spirit and they were killed. So the question is, um, why? And, 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 and what should we learn from that? And what I desperately do not want you to take away from this text is coming up with a list of things or sins that you must avoid, lest you be struck dead. Now, you're probably emboldened in that list a little bit in the fact that you probably don't know anybody recently who's been struck dead at church, right? Um, so, so you may not feel that that's uh, as prevalent of an issue for you, but um, I think to, to kind of get a proper bearings, let me read to you... Um, a parable that Jesus um, spoke about the kingdom. It's one that's pretty short. It's familiar to you, hopefully, but it's called the parable of the, of the wheat and the tares. It comes uh, right after he tells the parable of the sower and the seed and um, the different grounds that it can fall on. But this comes in uh, Matthew chapter 13, and this is verses uh, 24 through 30. So he, being Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came 
and sowed seeds among the wheat. So that when the plants came up and they bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it then have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So uh, there's a short interlude after this, and then they kind of go inside, they get away from the crowds, and immediately, of course, uh, as they're prone to do, the disciples goes, explain to us the parable of, of the wheat and the tares. And so Jesus uh, explains it to them. He says, effectively, it's this, that the, the sower of the good seed is, uh, is God, and he and, and the, the, the field is the world, and um, the good seed are the, the, the sons of the kingdom. But obviously, the enemy is the devil, and he's come in, and he's sown um, children of the devil within the same um, kingdom. And so, um, what we see in this text is a, um, a warning. It's a warning. So, it's not about necessarily our ability to identify the weeds out there. And um, what, what Jesus is trying to, to put before the people is that there is going to be, as you see it, people that uh, at some point you're, you're not sure if they're weed or weeds, and um, it's not your job to uproot them lest you uproot the wrong thing. And, um, but that doesn't mean that there's not, uh, there's not a distinction made. It doesn't mean everybody is the same. In fact, th- they are the same. And, um, and so... Um, at the end of the age is the time that we're told the, the judgment will come. So whatever you make of this, we're supposed to see uh, some key pieces. You have an enemy. Um, he's, he's sowed seeds in, in the field. Now, the, to, to see this as, you know, well, in the world, like meaning anywhere, in the world there's, there's wheat and there's weeds. Well, that's not that profound of a thing. But it, it is actually more um, important to be told, well, guess what? In, in the kingdom, in, in the visible church, in the people that you um, spend time with, there's going to be a mixed bag. And sometimes it's hard to see. And the people that, um, that, that, uh, that appear to be just like you are actually, can be, um, children of the devil. And so this is sort of a, um, a challenge to us to, to ask, well, you know, at what level do we stop trying to discern? And, and, we, and we, we say, well, um, you know, I, I guess, I, I don't know, in fact, whether or not I should, I should do anything, or, or do we do anything at all uh, when we think there's not someone genuine in and among us? And so, answering the question first, are they believers, is, is, uh, is important. So, Ananias and Sapphira, are they, are they believers? So, you've got two, two positions, right? They're either genuine Christians, or they're not. So let me, let, me, let me give you the arguments uh, for and against whether or not they're genuine believers because whether they are or are not is going to determine how we ought to properly respond to this text. So if they are true believers, if they're genuinely saved, um, that means that um, here we have a unique experience uh, that uh, you wouldn't expect because we're told as we're saved that we you have the grace of God and because of Jesus' payment, that our sins are, are now paid for. So why would, why would God in this instance um, choose to judge sin? Surely it's not the egregious nature of this sin. It's not more heinous than 
some other sins, and certainly other people in the church are sinners. In fact, everyone in the church is a sinner. So um, this, this kind of makes it difficult to, to discern whether or not they're, they're true. Um, but if they are, the only way to properly view this without doing something weird with the text is to say it's a discipline. Discipline is a, is a task that's given by Jesus to the church, to be carried out by the church for the benefit of the church. But here, we, we see the church in sort of its infantile, fledgling stage. It's not all that it is going to be as the transition phase is happening. And so it's possible that without the, the process in place where, Je, you know, Jesus tells them in uh, Matthew 18, you know, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately, right? And if he refuses to hear you, uh, then you, you take two people with you. And if he refuses to hear that, then he says, tell it to the whole assembly. That's the word for church. He says, tell it to the whole church. And then uh, if they refuse to repent, then they're like uh, a Gentile or a tax collector to you, meaning they're unsaved at that point. So the fact that they have not responded to um, God's truth, that they have not been uh, res- responsive to um, the rebuke of, of what's right in repentance, that shows that they're not actually believers. So that process not taking place here, there was no private thing with Ananias and Sapphira. There was no then two and three witnesses, right? So without that in place, it's possible that, um, that, that the Holy Spirit here is doing something unique. And so um, church discipline would kind of be the only way to hold the Ananias and Sapphira genuine believers and that God has intervened in this, um, in this case. And it's, it's also, it also comes at a unique time, right? The, the, the temple is still in operation. There's still um, priests there. And so simply... Um, you know, the result of church discipline is, um, is to, to then try to win that person back to the truth. But uh, you do that by, by, um, keep, by, by creating distance, right? You put them on the outside, if I can say it that way. Um, they're, they're literally excommunicated from the church so that they're not within the community. They're not considered believers. And um, if that had happened in this particular scenario at this time, it wouldn't have been so far-fetched of an idea that they could just go back to the temple. And that wouldn't seem that egregious of a thing. And so, in that case, maybe, maybe church discipline wouldn't have come about um, and, and brought about the results that uh, normally it's intended to. Um, the other possibility is that the Holy Spirit knows that, in this case, um, this is a, a sin that would not, um, would not be repented of. And so what he's done here is cut their lives short for the benefit of them and the community at large. Um, this is not without precedent. Um, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians when they're abusing the Lord's table. And he says, look, this is why some of you are weak and some have even fallen asleep. That's the euphemism for dying. He says, this is, this is the Lord's discipline, but it's, it's graciousness so that you would not go further in sin. It's the forfeiture of your physical life for the greater grace of saving your soul. So that's possible. If Ananias are genuinely converted and believers, that uh, the Holy Spirit here has literally taken church discipline into um, his own hands and carried it out. And, um, and so we should see this as, um, not as a judgment, but as discipline. Because we're told in Hebrews that God disciplines those whom he loves. And so it, it's possible here that that's, that's what's happening. If he truly um, calls them his sons and, and daughter, that, um, that they belong to him and he's... he's uh, using discipline here to refine um, them and to refine the, the greater body. But I, I have a hard time sticking with that one. 
And uh, I'll, I'll tell you some other reasons. So, so the other alternative maybe is they're not believers. And um, if they're not believers at all, then the story sort of loses its oomph. It comes at, uh, like, why put, why put it in here at all? And it's not all that remarkable that unbelievers are doing things that unbelievers would do. In fact, if an unbeliever decides to donate a bunch of money to us, I, I'm probably actually just being honest with you. I'm not going to scrutinize whether or not they're giving all of their money to us, right? So, so the idea that somehow they've come from outside of the community and that God then is judging these unbelievers for having sin, um, it really doesn't carry over. And that if you kind of pay attention to the last, it says it a couple times, that great fear came upon all who heard this. And then at the end, it says great, came, great fear came upon um, the whole church. And um, so in verse 11 tells us sort of what, um, what the outcome or what the, the fruit of this particular story is. And so without, without that idea in place, it really kind of does away with the reality that maybe they're, they're just not believers. So in 1 Peter 4, uh, 17, it says that, um, that judgment should begin with the household of God. So I think that um, what we have here is a reality that we're, we're seeing what it means that um, God's... Um, People must be holy, and the place where he resides must be holy, which is what I had said last week. Um, so, so, so what do we do with that? Well, in general, there's sort of a, a third option, and um, it's, it's in between those two, and it says they're identifying with the church, but they're not true Christians. And the reality that, um, that, that Jesus paints in the, in the parable of the wheat and tares tells us that this is the case. This is not something that's far-fetched. That in the field of the kingdom, there's going to be genuine wheat, and then there's going to be those that have been sown in. Um, and they're not, they're not um, children of the kingdom. And I'm sorry that my slides aren't working this morning, as they should be. But um, nobody's surprised when, when pagans act like pagans. But when those who profess to be part of the kingdom of God still act like pagans, there's, there's, there's something wrong, something, something uh, is, is clashing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in 11, um, Paul is talking to the problem that the Corinthians have of, of affirming this person in their congregation who's uh, in egregious sin, and he says, I'm not writing to you not to associate, um, I, I, he says, I am writing, excuse me, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone, listen very carefully, with anyone who bears the name of brother. Anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a one. So Paul's telling them, look, this is, this is what I'm saying. Don't, don't associate, don't have um, close communion with those who are professing to be brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're in unrepentant sin. And then he goes on to clarify in verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? So just take that statement alone and then ask the question, if they're unbelievers, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about judging outsiders because outsiders are going to do things that outsiders do. So he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Whom you are to judge. Not who you're not to judge, but who you are to judge. So as you are judging, it's not the people that are outside that are the problem. It's the people that are inside that are the problem. You are to make a, a distinguishing kind of um, value of what it is that you see in somebody's life. And then he goes on to say in 13, God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So there you have um, Paul telling us the, the point of keeping the, the, um, the body 
um, holy and, and sacred. So um, we, we have the, the, this third option of what's probably happening here, in my opinion. If I'm wrong, that's okay. Because the, because the, the end result is the same for you. And this morning, it's not, to, it's not a call for you to look outside and try to discern who's the wheat and who's the weeds. Hypocrisy is not cleared out of the church. It's not cleared out of your life by, by your ability to clean up the church. You're not held responsible for your ability to, to look into others' lives and see their sin and know their fate. You are responsible, however, for guess what? Your life. To be introspective and to know whether or not you have done what you should do and whether or not you're a hypocrite. So the church is not cleared of hypocrisy and you're not held accountable for your, for your ability to see it in others but in your ability to go home and look in the mirror and see it in yourself. So that's, that's this morning the call. We have this passage in Matthew 7, 21 that you've heard before but let, let me place it before you this morning as a warning and as a, a clarifying value. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Because on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So we have this, uh, this passage. Sometimes we don't know what to do with that. But the reality here is that there are people that associate, associate with the church who come in under the, the name and the, the identity of the church and identity of God and they're not actually believers or they don't actually belong. And the name part of this is sort of a, it's, a, it's, a under, it's an undertone that we, we've, we've sort of skipped over here. At the end of chapter 4, we're given this nickname of Barnabas, remember? Barnabas, he's, he's, he's renamed by the apostles, son of encouragement. And then, at the very beginning of chapter 5, we get this, um, this, this contrast, but. And then he says, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And um, their names mean, her, his name means God is gracious and her name means beautiful. And so now we read a story about um, a man who is anything but gracious with what God's given him. And a woman whose act is, is anything but beautiful. And so they're not effectively living up to their names. And then in verse 11, what you also don't see is that this is the first time in the book of Acts that the, the word church appears. And great fear came upon all, all the churches. It's not the first time in the New Testament, though. In fact, Jesus has been talking all along about the assembly, the gathering, the ecclesia, the congregation. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament of um, the 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 nation of Israel as they're traveling in the wilderness, the congregation. So, um, the idea that uh, we're identified as the church um, becomes important because it, it means something. It means that we're bearing the name of another. And so, real quick, I want, to, uh, I want to define holiness. I gave it to you last week, but I'll give it to you again. Holiness is, is part of the identity given to us by bearing God's name and by bearing God's spirit I really need this slide, so I'm sorry. Holiness is part of the identity given to us by bearing God's name and God's spirit so that those who come in and they identify as someone who bears God's name and has God's spirit, to do that 
is identity theft, and that's hypocrisy. So, to be holy is to be other, to be set apart, to be called one of God's people is to be holy. To be, to be made distinct from others is, is literally what it means for, for God to have set his name upon us. Holiness is not achieved, it's given. So it doesn't matter if you have willpowered avoidance of sin. It doesn't matter how much you try to do. You do not acquire holiness through your doing. It is not so much about a, morale, a morality statement as it is a, dec- a declarative statement. You have been set apart for another purpose. So holiness is a designation or a declaration of being holy. So something that is designated or devoted to God for a specific purpose. In Exodus chapter 28, as uh, they're kind of detailing all of the um, different garments of the priest, um, sort of literally the crowning piece of this outfit is a crown. And on the crown, there's something engraved, and it says, holy to the Lord, or holiness to Yahweh. That means literally set apart for me. By wearing the crown, the the priest is not um, sinless. He's not made holy. He's declared holy. For God's purposes. He's set apart for the same thing. This is, I think, um, more of the literal idea of what it means to bear God's name. This is why the commandment makes a a little more sense when you look at it in light of that. Do not bear God's name in vain. In a way that says, he's given it to you, he's entrusted it to you, but you you don't uh, reflect that at all in anything that you do. And so, this comes down to a question of God's people really living out the identity that he's given him. So this is why hypocrisy is like identity theft. It's saying, God, I'm taking your name, I'm taking your people, but I'm going to be only included through the idea of deception. Being, being, um, and being, gaining entry by deception means that you can only maintain your inclusion through, this, through continued deception, right? And so, um, we, we, we need to recognize a couple things because we tend to misdefine holy, uh, or excuse me, we misdefine hypocrisy. A lot of people, when they, when they say hypocrite, they really just mean you're a liar. Like, and in, in, uh, we, we lie about things, but that's not the same thing as hypocrisy. You know, if you just say, say you, you, um, you know, like the giving thing here, well, just to lie straight out is one thing, but then, but, but, but hypocrisy has the idea of, of deception that you know about for the intended purpose of your, your personal benefit or, or to be accepted or to avoid certain consequences. And so, um, we don't need to, to concern ourselves on, on whether or not we, we can discern whether or not somebody is masquerading as, as holy. But we, we do need to understand the reality that we do carry this identity by being called Christians or, or, or um, being included in the church. And so um, I just want to walk through um, several ways where this manifests itself. Because you, you, you have to understand that the church is made up 100% of sinners, right? There's nobody, there's nobody that showed up today that's, uh, that was perfect and we're all trying to get to your standard, what the church can be is 100% sinners, but it should never be full of 100% hypocrites. And uh, there's a distinction there. So, so in recognizing who we are, but, um, but what we've been called to is sort of um, this, this redeeming value that makes being called holy um, a truth and not a hypocritical statement. 
So, so though we experience um, sin in our lives, um, the thing that makes this not hypocrisy is that when we, when we are called out on it, we respond to it. This is, this is the effectiveness of, of church discipline. But hypocrisy uh, is rampant in the church. It's not, a, it's not an old problem. It's not like it, it just showed up, um, you know, as the church was born and we don't have that problem now. Um, the, 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 if you just go by, like, the statistics, the probabilities, the people that are sitting around you today, there's going to be somebody that's, that's wearing a mask that says, some, some part of my life is, is fake. And so you're like, well, does it have to be my entire identity? No. But if you're, if you're obscuring some truth for the purpose of deception, for inclusion, to be perceived another way than you really are, then that's hypocrisy. And so... Um, I don't want to uh, gloss over it and just say, well, it's just, it's just saying that you're a Christian if you really never prayed the prayer. Well, that's, that really doesn't get to the heart of it, does it? And, um, and this is what I think the story of Ananias and Sapphira is meant more um, closely to teach us. So here we have um, these, these people that have come in sort of under not, not, not genuineness. And uh, so we, see, so we see jealousy come in from um, their hearts they, they see what's, what Barnabas has done. They want what he has. They, they, it's, it's pride at the root of that. And so what we see is hypocrisy comes in and it distorts the truth of, of who they really are and what they really want. And eventually this deception destroys. It destroys them personally. And eventually if left uh, untouched, if it comes into the church, it destroys the community as well. So hypocrisy has, um, has several manifestations. And um, Jesus pronounces uh, seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. And, um, and we kind of see these come out in different ways. But I just want to kind of touch them so that we can see all the, different, all the different ways this morning that we may have hypocrisy in our own lives, in our own hearts. So one is the simple displaying of righteous, righteousness for personal glory. Um, this, is, this is what happens um, here for, for Ananias and Sapphira. They, they want... To, to give a gift so that they're recognized for how good they are. Um, we, just, we just use the term virtue signaling today. So it's the idea of telling you how good I am by participating in some activity so I might be associated with it. So you might go, man, he's a really good guy. Now, it's not just the fact that, um, that I want you... Uh, it's not just in uh, improper motiva- improperly motivated ideas. It's that... It, it, it terminates on me. It's not for God's glory. It's not because it's genuine. It's not be- to, help, to help out somebody. It's, it's none of those things. It's so that you will love me and think that I'm good. And um, to, to, uh, to carry the name of God is emphatically to take all of the, the spotlight off of you and point to another. So that if there's anything in you that seeks glory, that's, that's hypocritical. To, to operate in some way, to, to do some deed, to perform some act in a way so that you would receive the glory that's only, only due to God. And um, this was a, uh, a favorite of, of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They would go, it says, he, he's using the idea of um, them praying uh, openly in public and how they would pray loud prayers. And he said they like to make their phylacter, phylacter, I can't say it right now, sorry. Phylacteries long. And... Uh, and, and they want to be recognized and noticed for how holy they are. And um, so, so they do that for personal benefit. 
It's also using religious actions or belonging or being associated with God's name without the relationship. This is, um, it, it doesn't seem particularly advantageous to us because we tend to look at the, the soft tyranny of social, you know, rejection as, uh, as something that's really, really harmful. And so we, we think, well, you know, if somebody knows that I'm a Christian, they'll think I'm a nerd or something. And uh, that, that really doesn't hurt us that much. But um, in, in this particular case, what you're seeing is um, this community living together, and, um, and any who has a need is benefiting from it. And then you'll see um, healings happening, and you'll see that, um, that they become respected in all of the community. And so here, what's happening particularly at this time as the church is growing, that, that just being associated with the church was actually a beneficial thing, and not as we sometimes think of it as, well, it may not, it may not benefit me personally, but using God's name um, without having any relationship. So you're like, well, how does that come out today? Well, maybe something like with a televangelist, something like that, where they're asking for money in God's name, and, and, and they're displaying all of this, you know, supposed righteousness, they don't actually have a relationship with God. They're benefiting um, personally from it by, by financially or something like that or, or becoming um, famous. Pretending, pretending genuine faithfulness when the heart just isn't there. This is one I, I just want to um, I camp on because this is a little more subtle. It, it might sound like the same thing that's already happened, but it's not. Sometimes when... Um, when we know the right answer to, is to do something or to respond a certain way, but our heart really isn't in that place, and we succumb rather to the fear of what other people will think of us without actually having our heart behind that, that too is hypocrisy. And, th and this comes out positively and negatively. It's like, if, you know, if, if you're in some sin and, and, and I confronted you and I said, look, it says right here, like this is a sin, and uh, you're not really... You, you're not really convicted of it, but you know the right thing to do at that moment is like, yeah, I'm sorry. And I, I feel really bad. Maybe you poke yourself in the eye and get some tears going or something. Like, you know the right thing to do, but, but it's not, the heart isn't there. And, and so you think, well, this, this one doesn't harm anybody. It lets them, you know, um, kind of feel like I'm genuine. And, and uh, that one seems so, so subtle and superficial, but it's the one I think that bites us the most because a lot of times we, we know the right thing to do and uh, we do it out of, out of um, obligation. We, we do it because we, we think we must, because it's the thing that a Christian ought to do, but not because we want to do it, or the, the thing that a Christian ought not to do it. And, um, and so um, Romans uh, has a hard, a hard um, statement from Paul. And he says um, just very succinctly that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Anything that does not proceed from faith is a sin. That means any, anything that you do that is not a, a, an active response of, of God and surrendering to him and, and trusting him is, is sinful. And so we tend to slip into to legalism because we, we try to follow the rules because it's the right thing to do, not because our heart is behind it. And so when that happens, the slippery slope from legalism is right into hypocrisy, because then we have to maintain that same standard that we were never really, we, we were never really convicted of anyway. And so, um, the next one is hiding sin while displaying righteousness. This is, this is, um, 
probably the most um, common one for um, a lot of people because the most terrifying thing I think that we can think of is that the secrets of our hearts would be exposed before other people. And um, the reality is that your sin will find you out. And oftentimes, the thing that we're most terrified of, um, it's either going to be found out now or later. And we're play- you're playing a dangerous game. I, I don't know if it's, I, I think it's the, the secret hope that you'll have a last second moment to repent of something that you're refusing to repent of now. Something that you're, you're so terrified that the consequence of, of other people finding out or the ramification of the consequences of that sin, if other people knew that, then they wouldn't love you or they wouldn't respect you or they wouldn't, whatever. I'd lose my job. My spouse would hate me. My whatever it is. And, and that fear um, uh, forces you to, 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 to push sin down to a secret place, hoping that God will understand that, that and, and he'll just wink at it. And that somehow he'll, he'll agree that, yeah, you're right. That was probably the right thing to do. It's not. <laughs> it can't be. Hiding sin while coming here and, and pretending that everything is on the up and up. This is, this is the frog in the, in the kettle. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so hard to come back from. Because the longer you do it, the more you have to maintain it. And, and then eventually you just kind of become accustomed to it. And then to, to say it so far down the road would, would literally like implode your life for the most part, like socially, because you, you've maintained uh, this, this mask for so long. Condemning others for imperfections and failures that you, while you ignore your own sins or label them acceptable or you keep them private. This, again, sounds like maybe it's the same thing, but let me make a, a distinction here. We, we tend to um, be able to uh, readily see maybe some secrecy in other people's lives or, the, or um, we, we kind of begin to grade sin. And, and so we, we condemn the problem that other people are having and the fact that they're not repenting of that thing while in our own lives we ignore the things that are actually either the same thing or something, something else. Because we say, well, it's not as, as bad as that thing. And um, this is where, where Jesus gets the, the law guy um, statement. Like, if, if you see that your brother has a splinter in his eye, like, do, look in the mirror first. Make sure that you remove the log from your own before you go and tell this other person um, the sin. It's always to look introspectively first. But we tend to look out at others, see the problems that they have, while ignoring the imperfections and failures in our own hearts and our own lives. Because we label them as either fine or they're, they're private, they're not exposed, and so they, um, they're, they just don't seem to be as much of an issue as what other people are doing. And this last part of them being acceptable kind of plays into the, the final thing, which is grading sin is acceptable or not acceptable. I could make all of us real uncomfortable. In fact, I will. <laughs> You're here, you can't leave. I mean, you could, but then it'd be real awkward. It's very easy for us to think of the idea of discluding someone who was in a sin that we find unacceptable. Well, that, that person is, is homosexual. They shouldn't be included in the church. Now, 
it's, it's easy for us to grade that sin and go, well, that's, that's a problem and uh, it's out there in the public and it's open, and, but my thing is not as much of a problem. And so we begin to sort of adjust and we grade sins as something that, um, or, or some things are acceptable and, uh, and some things uh, are not. And it's okay to become and uh, maintain part of the congregation, just attend church and, and everything's fine just because you don't have this one more egregious um, category of sin. And uh, that's, that's the worst of hypocrisy. Because it, it not only damages you, but it damages the community. And it keeps other people from the grace of God. And it says your, your sin is in like a different category than mine. And um, this, this is what uh, Jesus saved most of his scorn for. He, he was especially frustrated with the fact that the Pharisees would, he says, you, you shut up the kingdom from the people who would enter it and you make them twice the children of hell as you are. He, he's saying, look at, all these, look at all the ways that you're unrighteous. He says, um, sorry, he's speaking for them and saying that. He says, you, you guys think you're, you're, you're so religious. You, you tithe on everything you have. You even give part of your spices. This is how religious you are. But you neglect the main things that the law was supposed to teach. And, and then you, you pronounce on others this, this condemnation because they're not as righteous as you are. He says, in doing that, you're, you're, you're keeping them away from the kingdom they would naturally enter, but you're, you're trying to categorize them as though they mustn't or they can't. And so this is what we, we, we tend to do when we grade sin, and it's hypocritical. That doesn't mean, however, that, we, that all sin should just be... It's not, it's not everybody in the pool. It's, it's we're all sinners. There's, there's, there's not necessary gradation, but it's those... We, we must repent of the sin that we have. So Jesus um, pronounced these, these woes on the Pharisees. If you want to read it, it's in Matthew 23. It's pretty gnarly text. And, um, and in these things that the Pharisees are doing, I, I, th- I don't think it's hard for us to look around in the community or even in our own lives and see some of these things in ourselves. And he eventually calls them blind guides. You, you are the people that are supposed to allegedly be representatives of who God is and, and, and what it means to be holy. But you're, you're leading these people to hell instead. So we're called all to live in honesty before God and before one another. Which is the most vulnerable thing that you can do, but the truest thing that you can do. Lest we be guilty of this accusation... In Matthew 15, it says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They, they worship me in vain, and they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. And that's sort of the, um, the paraphrased version of, of hypocritical living. It's, 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 it's creating a standard that's defined by man of things that are good and bad, maintaining that standard and calling it Righteousness. And then you, you kind of hold that out as what an authentic Christian should be. But this is what authentic Christianity looks like. So rather than um, trying to drill down on all the different ways that we might have hypocritical behavior in our lives, I think the better attack is to approach it from the call to authenticity. This is Hebrews chapter 13 and where I want to end this morning. 
in, um, there it is. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 12, says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care for those that would call themselves part of the congregation of God. Lest you find in your heart that you actually are an unbeliever and not somebody who's responding to his invitation to you or to his rebuke of you. And then he calls us, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is bad in itself. I think we know this. But the deceitfulness is that it creates a hardness of it in, in our lives. The more that we, we live with it, um, the more um, immune we become to it. The, the, the more we, we coddle it, um, the less we feel that it's dangerous. And when we do that, we become hardened to its effects. Then in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The original confidence is not in your ability to do good. The original confidence is in Christ, what he has done for you. That's the Lord is my righteousness, not I'm righteous by what I do or by, by, by what I show or by what standard I hold or what I hold other people to or how I see the problems in other people's lives. Your original confession and your original confidence is in Christ. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. See, just before this, he had talked about the problem of the congregation of Israel going through the wilderness. And I don't know whatever thing you have in your head, but everybody that's, um, that comes out of Egypt as the nation of Israel, we, we find out that it says that um, they fall in the desert. It says the Lord was not pleased with them. So uh, what I'm trying to get, get you to see is that you can walk with the nation. You can show up in the church. You can show your face. You can put on the face that seems to be acceptable. You can try to project righteousness. But if the truth underneath is not the truth in reality, it will be found out now or later. So today, if you hear his call to repentance, don't Harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. They hardened their hearts and said, we, 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 we don't want who you are, God. And, uh, and revealed to them, revealed the reality that they don't have faith in, in their hearts. So we can fake repentance. We can fake inclusion. We can put on masks. So I think this, this text is meant to show us that God is serious about the holiness of his community. And whether or not they're, they're um, finally saved is not, again, I, which we agreed with at the beginning. We, we don't know that. We can't see that. Only God can judge the heart. But this morning, you don't need to ask whether or not there's hypocrites around you. You need to ask, is there a hypocrite within you? Is there some way that you've been portraying a false righteousness. God doesn't call you to leave this morning. He invites you in. The, the idea that um, church discipline um, pushes people out is not, it's, it's the invitation to please come in. Please enter the grace that you clearly have not responded to. Please find the invitation waiting for, for, for Christ to be your all in all. It's not, it's not the pushing out so that you'll never come out. It's the pushing out so you recognize that you never came in. 
So this morning, recognize that it's, it is insiders and outsiders, but so that the outsiders know that they're invited in. True words from false lips or a false heart is not confession. Confession is to agree with the Lord. What the Lord says is that you have no righteousness in and of yourself. It doesn't matter all of your moralism and your good deeds and what you, you think will be acceptable in the end. The only thing that belongs in the kingdom that truly belongs to God is the seed that he's sown, that he calls good. And it's not like, well, I, I, I don't, I'm not good seed. It's, it's that if you recognize hypocrisy in your life, that's, that's the call to your heart to respond to it accordingly. So this morning, as I close in prayer, I can't pray for you. And in fact, I, this is not the time or the place. But you repeating my words is not authentic. But as the Lord should move in your heart, as he exposed things in your, in your lives, I'd ask you to pray. You don't need the right words. What you need is a heart posture to respond to him and what he would show. And we respond in confession and repentance. Father, this morning as we ask you to search our lives and our church, the easy road is to maintain the mask. Father, I pray that you wouldn't give us the courage to drop our pretenses and whatever show we might have and truly break our hearts that we might confess, we might live truly holy lives before you knowing that you are righteousness. God, I, I, I know that the, 